If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. This week, I want you to meet Prerna Gupta, founder and CEO of Hooked, a mobile entertainment company that has reached over 100 million Gen Z viewers worldwide. She built Hooked, a platform that tells stories through text and short-term video, and the streaming app Hooked TV to create inclusive stories and to empower diverse creators. Hooked's investors include celebrities like Ashton Kutcher, Mariah Carey, and LeBron James. Before Hooked, Prerna's first startup was acquired by Smule, where she went on to become chief product officer. At Smule, she led the development of hit music apps like AutoRap that has been downloaded by more than 350 million people. Prerna graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Stanford and Fast Company named her one of the most influential women in tech and most creative people in business. Let's welcome Prerna. Hi, Prerna. How are you? Hi, Alexa. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. First of all, anything you touch turns to kind of internet gold. And so I want to learn so much about you and so much about how you think the internet's changing. But before we go deep into a lot of different topics, let's just keep it simple. Let's start with what is Hooked in your own words? Yeah, absolutely. So Hooked is a mobile television network for Gen Z. As you mentioned, we reach over 100 million Gen Z viewers worldwide, both across our own apps and also across social media platforms like TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube, and Instagram. And we've done this by inventing really a new format for mobile television that combines text, audio, and video to tell stories in a way that mirrors how teens are living their lives today. And I think one of the things that's unique about how we've approached content development and what's allowed us to do this is that we take a very direct to consumer approach to everything we do. We're very data-driven, we test everything. And so we initially launch all of our shows as very short episodes, 30 to 60 second episodes that we launch across different social media platforms. And we find audiences for a concept before we invest in producing it. And this is really important. And this has been very important to me personally and speaks to my mission for this company and why I started it. And the reason it's important is because because we find audiences for stories before investing fully in them, it allows us to cast a really wide net and it allows us to tell stories from diverse perspectives, written by diverse writers, starring diverse faces, working with diverse directors and producers, et cetera. And so it's been kind of one of my dreams come true to be able to create a new kind of television network, essentially, that reaches not only reaches mass audiences, but also does so by empowering people from very different walks of life to tell their stories. So Prerna, let's break that down. Let's just pretend you're going after a new audience and you're creating something. Walk us through an example so that everybody that's listening can really understand what you mean by that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So let's say we have a writer, for example, we work with many LGBTQ writers. And so let's say we have an LGBTQ writer that pitches us a concept for a story about a female teenager who falls in love with her female best friend. And so what we'll do is, so in a traditional Hollywood setting, for example, what an exec would do is say, you know, well, I've never really seen stories like that gain traction before. And so it's not really a fit for what we're looking for because we don't think there's a good business case there. What we do by contrast is we say, write a 60 second episode and we'll publish this to our audience. We'll publish it you know, on a couple of channels, drive a few million views to it, and we'll see what's the data telling us. Are we seeing a signal? Are we seeing demand? Is our algorithm starting to find an audience for this story, even though it's never seen a story like this before? And we've seen lots of LGBTQ concepts that have come through our pipeline this way. And then we'll start to see a signal. Yes, this story has really high engagement stats, and so, They'll write the episodes, we publish them to our audience, we find the audience for it, we then invest incrementally in producing it in richer forms of media. So then we'll produce the audio version of that story, and then eventually, as the audience grows bigger and bigger, we produce the video version. I want to go to the beginning of it. Where was the aha moment? I mean, effectively, you let data inform how to create content, which for me makes perfect sense. But if you rewind, just given how you had just such an amazing vantage point as you thought about building Hooked, what was the aha moment where you said, we're doing it all wrong, let's do it the other way? So it actually happened after Smule. So I actually co-found all of my companies with my husband, Parag. We previously did music apps and then we sold that company to Smule. We were execs there for a couple of years. And after a couple of years there, we kind of started to get the itch again and, and wanted to get back into creating stuff ourselves. But before jumping right back into the next startup, we decided to travel. We ended up traveling for a year and a half. We spent a lot of time on beaches, started to learn how to surf. I'm Still figuring that out. And my husband made more progress on that than I did. But as we were doing that, we started to write a novel for young adults. It's a sci-fi fantasy trilogy set in Silicon Valley in the future. And our dream for this novel was to create something like the next Harry Potter. You know, we wanted to create this iconic generation-defining story that maybe you can reach hundreds of millions of people, billions of people, like we were able to do with some of the music apps that we've created previously. And so we just start to ask ourselves, how do you do that? How do you create a hit story today? And especially as, you know, unknown creators from unusual background, how do you do that? And there was something in particular that for me was, you know, important in this question because I was writing a story. It was a sci-fi fantasy trilogy, but there was something very different about it in that the protagonist was an Indian American female. And there really has never, even to this date, been a massive, you know, mass market blockbuster sci-fi fantasy story with an Indian protagonist, Indian female protagonist. And I felt like if I just go through the normal channels, you know, I'm going to hear this same thing again and again, which is, this is a great, this is a cute idea or whatever, but like the market's not ready for this. Nobody wants to read a story or watch a movie with an Indian female protagonist in this genre. And so I just kind of started thinking about, you know, that's a kind of crazy way. Like if the only stories that ever get made are based on what has succeeded in the past, all of our stories will always just be the same. Nothing's ever going to change. But the world is changing and the audience is changing. Viewers are changing. But it felt like the product, if you will, which is movies or TV shows or books, that product wasn't keeping up with the change. And that was really, for me, the aha moment. I felt like 
that's not how we develop mobile apps. You know, we're not top down about it. We come up with a minimum viable product. We put it out into the hands of customers quickly. We look at data, we iterate, we test, 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 and keep iterating until we have something that works. And that allows us to create something new and different that big companies oftentimes aren't able to create because they aren't able to iterate in that way. And so I felt like maybe we can apply that kind of process to story creation. And by doing that, give voice to unique creators like myself. Well, first of all, I love everything about the way that you think about this. And you're absolutely right. We we need to break the mold. So I want to pause for everybody that's listening. There are a few really interesting layers to Hooked that I want to go through. So you've changed all of it, the format, the content, and the distribution. Can you just start on the format? What inspired the idea for bite-sized content? And how do you think about defining bite-sized? So it really all came from our experiments, basically. You know, when we started Hooked, we didn't have preconceived notions about what the stories would look like. It was just this recognition that there was a gap between users and consumers of content and the way that the existing structures, the existing institutions were creating content. And our premise was content must evolve. The way we live our lives on, on the mobile phone is changing so dramatically and so rapidly. And content has to evolve to basically fit into this new life we're living on the mobile phone. Our first, our absolute first objective was, okay, we want to be able to get stories out into the hands of our consumers early so we can prove that there's demand for a particular story and a particular concept. To do that, we have to do it in a format that's lightweight, that's cheap, that's, that lends itself to iteration and to testing. Movies and TV shows, of course, are in video, which are very heavy. They take a long time to produce and they're super expensive. But every movie, every TV show starts off in a very lightweight and cheap format and that's text. And so step number one for us was build an audience for stories in written format, essentially a script. Can we build an audience? Can we get our end customer, our end user, which for us was, you know, Gen Z on mobile, can we get them to start reading stories in script format, in written format, and build an affinity towards a story in that format first? So that was our mandate. But in order to do that, we had to get Gen Z to read. <laughs> and Gen Z notoriously does not want to read <laughs> because, of course, they're spending all their time on mobile and they're really not interested in, in reading novels. And so we just felt like there's got to be something we can do to crack this. You know, obviously, a 100,000 page book is not going to be interesting on a mobile phone, but that doesn't mean that stories can't be interesting, written stories can't be interesting. So we just started, we, we were very data-driven and we're very lean startup about everything we do. So we just started, we wanted to first establish benchmarks. What happens if you take a YA novel, a traditionally written YA novel and put it on a mobile phone and drive a Gen Z audience to it, how much time do they give you? How engaged are they with that? That helped us establish benchmarks. And of course we saw that they were not very engaged at all, but it showed us what we were trying to beat. And once we had those benchmarks, then we just started iterating on different product ideas. We just, it was like quick and dirty experiments of what can we do to make reading more engaging and reading stories that could potentially eventually be turned into movies. So we tried initially more kind of comic book inspired ideas where it was telling some of the story through text and some through images 
sort of felt like Instagram for stories. Tried a few iterations of that. We weren't really able to improve our metrics beyond the baseline. And then one day we just had, a, you know, through the, through the experimentation, had this idea of telling stories in bite-sized format as chat conversations, basically delivered one line at a time. And the first story that we tested in this format just had engagement that was through the roof. So to give you kind of an example, all of our previous experiments and the benchmarks that we established on a five minute read would have an approximate completion rate of about 35%. The first text story, chat story that we tested, five minute read had an 80% completion. And so we saw, we almost tripled basically our completion rate um, with this format innovation. And so that was when it was like, you know, the light bulb went off. We knew that we were onto something big. Let's double click on that. What does Gen Z want to consume? What did that tell you? I think there's sort of two categories, to, you know, to that answer. One is more around the content, the type of content. And we do stories in lots of different genres at this point, but what defines all of them, all of the stories that are successful is visceral emotion and human connection. And this makes a lot of sense if you think about it. You know, obviously Gen Z lives their lives on mobile, they live their, their lives on social media, but in a lot of ways, especially now uh, with COVID, they're very isolated. Um, and so what they're looking for, you know, in their you know, experience on the mobile phone is often very, you know, they want to feel strong emotions and they also want to feel the joy and pain of human connection. And so every story that works for us tends to have that, have those elements. So even if it's a horror story, for example, that horror story is going to be much more effective if it's in the context of a relationship. Maybe it's a girl and a boy or a mom and her daughter, but it's, if there is a, a human level of emotion and a human connection, it makes that story much more engaging. The other piece to this answer though is, is much more, I guess it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more abstract and, and more kind of structural in nature. And that has to do with density of information, basically. So, you know, there, there's been a lot obviously said and a lot of money invested into other companies, you know, around this idea of short form content. Yep. But it's not really about it's not that this content has to be short as such, although we do a lot of short form content. It's that, you know, when you're, when you're creating something on mobile, you are competing for attention with everything, with all this stuff on all social media platforms, right? Like, you know, a teenager's on, they're not just on TikTok, they're on TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram and YouTube at the same time. <laughs> and so you're competing with all of that. And so, the bar for attention is really high. And it's not that they won't give you 15 minutes of their time in one sitting, but it, they'll give you 15 seconds at a time, right? So it's like with the first 15 seconds, you've got to really prove to them that it's worth another 15 seconds of their time. And then it's worth again, another 15 seconds of their time. And that means that the information density has, you need a lot of information density. So when you're talking about a story, in a five minute story, a lot more has to happen than what you would see in traditional television or traditional movies. And so that's a really important element of hooked stories that, and that's something that really makes our content different than what's being produced through traditional means, which is that it packs a punch. There's a lot of plot progression that happens in five minutes. So, so much so that a lot of times nowadays, I mean, and, and I mentioned this before, our, sometimes our episodes are 30 to 60 seconds long and that can only happen if something meaningful happens in 30 to 60 seconds. 
That is wild to me. I mean, it really is. To your point, it's just like you put everything through a speed filter and it's just as our attention spans are getting shorter, so does exactly. it through which every ounce of content that we go through, which is, I think, a really important thing to repeat and say out loud. Yeah, it is. And I think there's one thing, I mean, you know, it sounds a little bit depressing in a way because, you know, we think of it as, you know, Gen Z is ADD and they can't pay attention to anything for more than 30 seconds at a time or sometimes even less, 15 seconds. But I think that there's a positive angle to it too, which is that, and it's what I was saying before, that the bar is higher, right? Like, because there's so much competing for our attention, you have to make it worth their while. But they're also able to absorb a lot more, I think, in 30 seconds than maybe we were able to you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And so I like to view it as a positive thing, which is that in a five minute you know, experience, you can get a full emotional journey uh, and you can get a lot more for your five minutes you know, than maybe you could have previously. So the next topic I wanna to transition here is just distribution. So hooked, goes viral and you're now sitting here and again in your kind of next big swing as a founder you know already looking incredibly successful you're at the point where you've reached over a hundred million viewers and you're just getting started talk us through a little bit of how you think about distribution yes that is ever evolving and it's one of the things that I think it's always true. It's true for traditional media. I mean, we've seen it, right? With music first and now with video content, but it, it kind of happens in warp speed in our industry and in mobile. So, you know, when we first started, we started with an iOS app and an Android app. We were first just chat stories and then we added video and now we've added, then we added audio and now we've added video. And in the early days of Hooked, we had this early viral success, you know, the app, you know, we rose up to the top of the app charts multiple times and it was like really, really awesome. And there were all these clones that came up and like chat fiction became a thing. It was all very exciting, but we had, you know, this long and ambitious plan from the very beginning, which is we wanted to create a new type of mobile television network or a mobile television studio for Gen Z. And we ultimately wanted to be creating stories in video format. And it was, I think at that point in time, it was very tempting to really just focus on this kind of singular app experience that we had built that was inside our own, just our own app and own it completely. But we started to get interest from Xap to publishing some of our content. It was a little bit counterintuitive for us to do that. We were monetizing our content through subscriptions. It was super profitable. We didn't use any of the funding we had raised for years, but we decided to go ahead and kind of take a leap of faith and do that. And it ended up being very, very successful for us. And that sort of changed our trajectory a little bit where we're at a point now where our biggest audiences are actually off of our own platform. They're on Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram. Um, and we still have a very dedicated audience that you know spends lots and lots of time on all of our content in our own apps, but the majority of the audience is outside. And it wasn't really how we envisioned things starting off, but it's been really pivotal for our company because it's allowed us more than anything, I think it's just allowed us to stay and forced us to stay very dynamic because 
even on these own, like there are new platforms coming up all the time. Obviously the story of the past couple of years has been TikTok. TikTok has just been on a tear. Even since COVID, we've seen our traffic on TikTok just grow tremendously. And I think if we had just kind of stayed insular, we would have just gotten stale. It's like we would have gotten just like what has what happens to traditional industries, I think in a lot of ways would have happened to us because you just keep catering to this existing audience that you have and you know, you just sort of work your way into this. You kind of just, in a way, success can become a curse because you keep just investing in what's been working and you're not as attuned to how your, your customer base is changing and how the world is changing. And so we think about distribution, honestly, it's like a week to week thing. It's like, because we're out on these social media platform, it's so fast, the world moves so fast, the things that they're talking about and the way that they're interacting with our content changes, it's dynamic, it's this living and breathing thing. And we don't view it as something that we've just figured out. It's like, we know, and it just works. We view it as a constant challenge and a constant opportunity. I like that. First of all, I think there's so many lessons for people who are building companies to take from you, which is that for you, nothing is permanent. Exactly. The way that you view building your business is that every ounce of the strategy is in motion because the ecosystem of which your 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 customers and Gen Zers and everybody else is constantly in motion. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carden knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. I want to go to the content creation side. You know, I think in so many ways, the way that you've thought about having people come and create and write stories for the platform has evolved and we've seen the wave of passion economy in companies like Patreon that enable creators to monetize. Do you consider Hook to be in that category? And how, for everyone listening out there, the you know hundreds of thousands of people that will, will listen to this, how do how do they become a writer? How do they become a content creator? Yeah, so it's a great question. So I would say we are sort of in the same category as Patreon, but I think there are some important differences. So basically we consider ourselves to be a closed platform for professional creators. So for example, what we're not, um, we're not a UGC platform. Um, we are an invite only platform for writers. Let's, let's start with writers. And it, a lot of it happens through word of mouth. Most of our writers have studied you know, creative writing in universities. Many of them have MFAs. They've been doing this professionally for many, many years. And that's important because writing a great story is hard. <laughs> and uh, you know, we want to encourage people to you know, try it, but it's really important that it's something that they've devoted themselves to and it's a skill that they've developed. But we tend to focus on writers that are at the same time relatively early in their careers. I think what we have found is it's a really good synergy for us where when a writer has you know, spent some time honing their craft, but they maybe haven't had their big break yet. And so what we offer is the ability to earn money you know, for their creative writing, which is often very difficult early in your career. 
And we also offer them a big audience. Many of these writers have, you know, maybe if they're from the screenwriting world, you know, been assistants on shows, they've been writing kind of, you know, at home, but no one's really ever read their writing and they've never had the ability to put their writing out in front of big audiences. It would be absolutely silly not to ask you because you've created viral ops not once, but many, many times in your career. For everybody out there, you know, wanting to learn how to make something go viral, what are the quick rules that you swear by that everybody should know about? Yeah, definitely. So three rules um, I can tell you, and I think these are my three most important. And I actually think, I think these are particularly important for mobile apps, but also honestly for any kind of product that you're building. The first is focal point. So when you're developing on mobile, you obviously have a very small screen. You know, it's, it's, it's very limited real estate. And so it's really, really important to make sure that every screen that you create um, has one central focal point. Don't try and smash 10 or 20 different features onto one screen. Even if, of course, you can have a menu or whatever, different ways to access different things, but just make sure that there's one thing that each screen, one purpose for each screen and one thing that each screen does really well. The second thing is think like your user. It's really important when you're building a product to put yourself in the mind of your end user and really think about where they're coming from. What is their state of mind when they first interact with your product? What are the other things that are competing for their attention? I think when one of the pitfalls, um, especially when you're first starting off as a product developer or product manager, is you know you get so close to your work and you when you're critiquing it, you're critiquing it from your own perspective, understanding all the things that you know about it and having your own vision in your head. But it's really, really important. I think what separates really excellent product managers from average ones is their ability to sort of pull themselves out of their own head and really um, channel their user and their user's perspective. And so, for example, when you launch your app, you know, really try to pay attention to your human reaction kind of, you know, to that first screen and to the images, to where the buttons are, where are you confused, put yourself in the mind of your user. And the third thing is keep iterating. A product is never finished. It's so important, you know, ship early, ship often, just get your product out there, create a minimum viable version of it, get it into the hands of customers, use data and iterate, iterate, iterate. Um, Don't be emotionally attached to some vision of your product that you have. Don't rely too much on your own assumptions because people will will surprise you. There've been so many, so many times that we've tried a feature or we've, you know, tried a variant of a feature and the results have just shocked me. Even to this day, it happens every single day. So it's really, really important to keep iterating. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. If we fast forward a decade, given that you are at the forefront of content creation, that's, that is a fact. What is obvious to you? If you fast forward one decade and you have to make a prediction, what does it look like? Just, I want to, I want to get a sense of what's so obvious to you. I think the biggest thing, which most most people aren't seeing yet is, so I think TV looks very, very different 10 years from now. And the biggest difference is we think of TV today still as this, you know, 30 minute kind of linear experience. And cause I, you know, 
that's, I think, how most of us still consume TV. I still consume TV this way. It's, you know, 8 p.m. at night, I'm sitting on my couch, and I want to watch 30 minutes of an episode of something. Gen Z, you know, which is growing up, right? Like 10 years from now, they are going to be us. <laughs> and important to say that they're actually, a phone is older than Gen Z. Our <laughs> is an older device. Exactly. And so that's a really interesting point, an important point, because I think what separates Gen Z from us is that Gen Z, they are mobile natives, right? Like they grew up with the mobile phone and with all of this. And so their fluency with the, the crazy distractions and all of that stuff on the, on the phone is just so much greater than ours. And what that means is that the way they consume content is so different. And I kind of alluded to this earlier, you know, they are on all these different sites or apps at the same time. And when they interact with a piece of content, they don't want to just interact with it one time for 30 minutes in one sitting and in one place on just Netflix. They want to interact with it in different lengths and in different formats everywhere that they are. And so to me, the biggest difference is a TV show 10 years from now is not just going to be that 30 minute experience. It might be in some cases, a 30 minute experience, linear experience on Netflix or whatever, but it will also be you know, a series of 30 second experiences on TikTok with video and audio and text, or maybe there's text on Snapchat and the 30 second thing on TikTok and some images on Instagram. It's gonna be a combination of these things and it's, it's going to be much more dynamic and much more living and breathing in the way that the internet is. So it's not this thing that you create that's statics, that, that's just there for 30 minutes for you to consume, which by the way, 30 minutes is short, right? Relative to what <laughs> things used to be, it's already shorter, but it's going to be something that people can interact with at multiple points throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year, and that is produced at a pace that matches how we live our lives. And so it's dynamic, it changes and adapts to the consumers and to the things that are happening in the consumers' lives. I love it. I could talk to you for honestly another hour on just that topic. Last big question on the future. So you've been a mobile first entrepreneur now many times. What do you think the next version of mobile first is? Like meaning, is there a new platform we're gonna shift to? How do you think about that? Well, it depends on, okay, well, you said next. So I think there's two interesting answers to this. One is like far future, which I'll get into in a second. And then one is kind of immediate, you know, future. What it is, is basically mobile is evolving. So it is still going to be fundamentally mobile, but the difference is how, for lack of a better word, how integrated or immersive mobile is. So I know that obviously two years ago, AR VR was like, you know, you went through this crazy hype cycle and everyone was like, this is the next thing. And obviously anytime something goes through the next hype, that kind of hype cycle, you just know it's not going to be the next thing and it's a bust and now it feels like a bust. But I think that in a lot of ways, it was, it was the right general idea. It's just that people's vision for it wasn't quite right. But I, I, it's basically some form of AR, but it's, and it's already starting to happen. So for example, TikTok has really, really incredible AR features that are 
completely integrated into the experience. And if you, you know, when you, when you're creating videos on TikTok, it's such a different experience from creating videos on any other platform. And it's because the way they've integrated AR and machine learning basically into the experience is so seamless and so integrated that it allows you to express yourself. It, it's like, it's just becoming this tool that we're using that's very native basically to the mobile experience. And so it doesn't feel that different right now, but it's evolving and it's evolving at such a rapid pace that a year from now, the way we use our mobile phones and the level of expressivity and the level of kind of comfort and basically fluidity with how we use our mobile phones is I think going to feel like a leap forward. If you fast forward five years, it's gonna be even greater. I think it's with these technological innovations that are happening around machine learning and AR, are basically changing how, what mobile is and what it means. So it is still mobile, but it's fundamentally different. And it's, and it's not like AR, VR is a separate thing with like Oculus and whatever, like it's the combination of those technological advances and just the fact that we're living our lives on mobile. And then the far future thing, just real quick, uh, which is one that I'm really excited for, for from, you know, from a sci-fi perspective, but I also just really believe in it is Technology is becoming a part of us. And I think in the future, we will, we will literally have computers embedded inside us. And it kind of seems a little scary, but I think it's really exciting and empowering because it allows us, it will become a part of our evolution as humans. And I think it'll really expand our ability to communicate with each other. One of the things right now is technology, as I'd mentioned earlier, feels sometimes isolating, but I think the more that it becomes integrated with our bodies, the more it'll be able, it'll enable us to actually connect with each other uh, at, a, at an even deeper level. I totally agree. And again, I honestly could talk to you for like five more hours on what we just talked about. We have to this over wine at some point in the future. I would love that. I, I want to quickly transition to you. I'm just going to ask a few quick questions here, but I would be absolutely remiss not to ask you, given that you've done it many times, what surprises you the most of being an entrepreneur? What's the hardest part? What's the thing that you're like, oh, it's just, how does this keep happening? What's the thing that surprises you? Honestly, it's just the emotional ups and downs. It's it's a total emotional roller coaster and it never goes away. You know, you never fully feel like you've succeeded. And I think part of that is that's what makes us great is that we're always striving. You know, you reach a certain point of success and you're already thinking about what you want you know, what you want to achieve next. And that's the entrepreneurial journey. I mean, even just look at Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter, like they're still striving and, you know, constantly going through, through failures. It's the emotional ups and downs, but I think that, and it's never, it never gets easier exactly to deal with, but I think over time you just learn to kind of zoom out and you understand that it's a part of the journey and you kind of start to take the, the learnings from the downtimes, you know, like when every time that I'm like something, like everything just feels like it's like clicking and it's all awesome. And I feel like very elated. I sort of try to tamp my highs a little bit. Cause I know I kind of brace myself. Cause I know that there's going to be, something's going to knock me down soon. And there's going to be a low coming. And at the same time, when there's a low, I try and just kind of keep myself propped up and stay positive and just think about what can I learn from this? What is this this moment trying to teach me? Mm -hmm. And so over time, like the, the highs and lows keep happening, but you sort of learn to stay steady 
And I think it's like, as you start to learn how to stay steady, you become a better and better entrepreneur. Next question on you, your co-founder has been your husband. And it's funny, I actually am in a marriage where I feel like so, I feel like that is sort of the same way our marriage works, but I want to ask for everybody out there, how have you made it work? Yeah, absolutely. So for us, I mean, honestly, I, at this point, couldn't do it any other way. You know, my husband is my co-founder for life (laughs) And, and it probably isn't for everyone, but it works really, really well for us. A couple of really important things. The one, one thing is it's really important to have a very clear separation of powers. So, you know, in every company that we start, I'm the CEO, my husband, Parag is the CTO. And it's not that we don't, obviously there are, you know, we make strategic decisions together and, you know, we both have a lot of experience at this point building, you know, on the product management side of things. So there are a lot of, there's plenty of overlap in our abilities, but at the same time, there's a very clear you know, delineation, you know, I'm in charge of with hooked, the content development, the business development, um, the fundraising, you know, the press and the marketing, you know, for him, he's in charge of the engineering, um, you know, the, the data analysis. And in the case of hooked now, the product management, although I used to do product management previously. And so that clear separation of powers just makes it it, it just means we don't step on each other's toes a lot. And we sort of have the ability to go off and manage, you know, the things that we're managing and make decisions without there being a lot of disagreement. The second thing, you know, there's of course always going to be disagreement and there, there are going to be things that we do need to make decisions on collectively, especially on big strategic things. And so, and I think this is the most important thing. I think this is important for any co-founder relationship. I think it's probably important for any marriage as well, which is you have to have a really good approach to resolving disagreements basically. And for us, you know, I like to say that we don't really fight, we debate. And what that means is that we try to keep the temperature you know, low. We try to not get overly emotional when we're talking about things and, and debating. And it's just really two objective people with points that they're making. And, you know, you, we try and convince each other of the other's perspective. And it's it's been really, really successful for us. We'll always find a way to kind of be aligned in the decision-making. And it's, it's just about developing a relationship that allows you to you know, see each other's perspective and come to agreement without getting angry. I love everything about this. And I feel like, you know, literally your husband and my husband, we all need to go out to dinner. (laughs) Um, I think we'd get along really well. I want to know your coolest pinch me moment so far at Hooked. The moment where you said, oh my God, I can't believe that just happened. What was it? So it was definitely the day that the Hooked app went to the number one spot in the app store, the number one app in the world um, for that for that time period. It was just so exhilarating. It's as an app developer, I mean, it's just the greatest feeling in the world. And to be able to have this crazy idea, you know, that everyone thought was silly, you know, and just reach that kind of an audience and, and get that kind of validation was just such an amazing feeling. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for it. What is the thing that keeps you on the tracks? So as a serial entrepreneur, you, we've all learned you can't manage other people until you can manage yourself. What's the thing you swear by? 
I have a pretty disciplined daily routine. It's very, very important for me. And my husband and I actually are very in sync on that. So we kind of do it together, but it's, it's about, you know, eating healthy, eating three meals a day at the right time, trying to get sleep. I mean, it's hard, especially I have a toddler, 19 months old. It's not easy to get sleep all the time, but just try and have good hygiene, you know, sleep early, sleep at the right time, you know, same time every day and get exercise, you know, and again, there's not always time for that, but just make as much time as you can. Sometimes it's just 15 minutes of stretching. Sometimes it's a walk around the block. Um, I love Peloton. That's like a big thing for me, but yeah, it's just staying disciplined. I think one of the things I've learned in my life is that discipline, it it doesn't sound sexy, but it's, it's one of the things that brings you happiness and kind of keeps you clear headed and keeps you motivated. And, uh, you know, doing a startup's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It takes years and years and having that disciplined routine helps me a lot. Um, goodness, I couldn't agree with you more <laughs> as I stare at my Peloton here. Um, first of all, thank you so much. Everybody, if you have not already learned more about Hooked, please check out Hooked at hooked.co. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alex Von Tobel. Prerna, thank you so much for joining us today. You are a special human in every way and you literally glow. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Alexa. I feel the same about you. I really, really appreciate it. 